that was invaluable, like me, you are here to have that knowledge protected or extracted. Unlike me, many of you have accepted the situation of your imprisonment and will die here like rotten cabbages. The rest of you have gone over to the side of our keepers. Which is which? How many of each? Who's standing beside you now? I intend to discover who are the prisoners and who are the warders. I shall be running for office in this election. Welcome to Prisoner Worth Watching, where we're looking at this groundbreaking 50-year-old show about spies, paranoia, and politics that's more relevant now than ever. I'm your host, a man who really enjoys my non-alcoholic spirits in my spare time. <laughs> my co-host is Guy, who I hear will be running to take over my position soon. Hello, Guy. Hello, Ron. So do you have an election message prepared? I do. It's vote for Ron. I'm busy <laughs> enough. <laughs> okay, sounds good. So, context for today's episode, which is free for all. This is written and directed by Patrick McGowan, so that's definitely interesting. For some reason, he used a pseudonym for the writer, uh, Patty Fitz. <laughs> it wasn't mm. a very subtle pseudonym. I don't really know why, especially it seems in the old days, people did this all the time where they would obscure contributions they'd made. I mean, I understood it like, I remember the old science fiction magazines, they would do that because they didn't want you to realize that half the stories had been written by the editor of the magazine. They wanted it to feel like they had a bunch of writers. So I understood that, but I don't really understand this. Yeah. I could see if it's like a union thing maybe, but I don't, you yeah, know, I don't know. It, it might be. I think the writer's guild, I think you may be right with that. I don't know the details, but I've heard of such things happening before. Yep. Who knows? Surprisingly little context for this particular episode. We'll have a little bit more to talk about at the end. So we will just uh, jump into free for all. All right. What do you want? Number six. I said, what do you want? You are number six. That is the number of this place. Call from number two. Good morning. Good morning. Any complaints? Yes. I'd like to mind my own business. So do we. Do you fancy a chat? The mountain can come to Mahomet. Well, the episode starts off in number six's apartment, and his phone is beeping. It doesn't ring, it beeps. Most <laughs> phones at that time would have rang wrong. <laughs> the voice on the other end says, you are number six, and he says, that is the number of this place. He does not like being called number six. Mm -hmm. The call is from number two's office. Number two begins talking, and when he does, number six spins around, alarmed, because he's heard number two's voice also coming from behind him. He's appeared on the television set. So it's a nice little surprise there. And kind of a callback to 1984, right? When you had the, mm -hmm. oh, the, the TV television. Oh, the telescreens, yeah. 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 And this number two, I may as well mention it now, he really seems to take a particular pleasure in screwing with number six and just, just lying <laughs> mm -hmm. to his face and all this. But we'll see a lot of that as we go on. Number two asks, any complaints? Number six says, yes, I'd like to mind my own business. <laughs> and number two asks him if he fancies a chat. And six says, the mountain can come to Muhammad. <laughs> 
So he walks away from the phone, number six does, and almost at once, number two is in his doorway. He asks, Muhammad? And number <laughs> six replies, Everest, I presume. Yeah, they have a number of these little exchanges. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then another similar exchange follows. Number six asks whether they will be playing according to Hoyle. Number two says, all cards on the table, you may rely on that. Which, of <laughs> course, is an utter lie. <laughs> Even more than some of the other number twos we've seen, this guy just seems to delight in BSing number six. <laughs> number two goes into the kitchen and he picks up some coffee mugs from the kitchen counter and he asks breakfast as a maid enters with a tray of breakfast. This maid is number 58. Number two explains she used to work in records and she has a great variety of information. And we'll see that she doesn't seem to speak English. And the language sounds vaguely Eastern European, but I can't identify it. Yeah, I think it's a nonsense language. <laughs> yeah. Just trying I, to seem alien to him, you know. I think you're right about that although that makes it all the more interesting in a scene later on where he mm -hmm. seems to be at least a little conversant with it mm -hmm. as a good secret agent should be <laughs> so they sit down to their breakfast and number two says international cuisine the best number six asks french number two replies international <laughs> that's all the clarification he's getting yeah they don't they never like to get clear on these things <laughs> At least he got that specific. He could have said intergalactic or something. <laughs> the PA system says, good morning, and an oddly mixed message. It says, congratulations on yet another day. <laughs> <laughs> the weather forecast is some clouds, but dry. And number two is disappointed to hear this. He says a showery outlook is very depressing. It's almost as if he doesn't trust the weather forecast. Hmm. We'll see some umbrellas soon enough that suggests he may have had the right of it. Number two says the election campaigns begin today. We make our choice every 12 months. Are you going to run? Then number six has a good reply here, I think. He says, like blazes, the first chance I get. <laughs> now, number two is amused with that. He even suggests that number six could run for the office of number two. Number six compliments his sense of humor, and number two says, naturally, humor is the very essence of a democratic <laughs> society. The speaker that's a lot of the time playing music into the house, into the apartment, it's been fairly quiet after the weather forecast, but now a big loud fanfare comes out of it. Number two walks into the living room, and on the television, his silhouette is there, black with a white background. He opens a side door to see a crowd standing on a carved stone walkway. It's a big crowd. There's a brass band. They've got a big vote number two placard with a picture of him on it. There's a few of the fancy men we've seen with the top hats and the black overcoats. There are lots of umbrellas. Then most of the umbrellas have the same four color scheme as the Google logo. <laughs> <laughs> which seems appropriate to me somehow. <laughs> well, they do seem to be running things. <laughs> <laughs> the crowd is chanting number two, and they form a procession past number six's side door. Number six observes it looks like a unanimous majority. <laughs> number two says that worries him. It's very bad for morale. 
And he seems to be very concerned about democracy. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes, the integrity of the election and all that. Number six asks, what happens if I run against you? What physically happens if I win? Number two says, you're the boss. Number six says, number one's the boss. Well, number two doesn't have a direct answer to that. He just says, join me, and they step back into the living room. Now that they're back out of the public eye, number two says, if you win, number one will no longer be a mystery to you. And this is probably not a valid speculation or a correct <laughs> speculation, but it makes me wonder if at the end of the episode, a certain people seems to knock number six down a notch. I'm wondering <laughs> if that could be number one. I doubt it, but it would at least fulfill what number two said here, although uh, number two lies all the time. <laughs> well, they step outside. They get down to street level this time, and at once the chanting stops, the number two chant. Everything's quiet, then a drummer begins a slow beat, and number two and number six walk together to one of the carts. Once they get in, suddenly everybody livens up again. The crowd begins chanting, and the band strikes up. An instant parade forms. They travel to the balcony we saw in the first episode, the balcony where number twos talk through megaphones. It's the <laughs> kind of a courtyard place with a big fountain. This is the location where in the first episode, everyone suddenly froze rather creepily on a command mm -hmm. from number two. Number two's on the balcony with number six beside him. He gives a wave of his hand that seemed somewhat Hitler-esque to me. <laughs> the crowd falls silent. Number two begins his speech through the megaphone, and we see that the audience has cue cards telling it how it should react. There's the butler holding them. I thought that was kind of funny. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the first is rah, rah, rah. <laughs> Number two says that the current state of the election, with him running unopposed, is unacceptable, and he asks the crowd, what must we do? And the second cue card is revealed. Progress, progress, progress. <laughs> number two refers to number six as a recent recruit whose outlook is particularly militant and individualistic. <laughs> he hands the megaphone to number six who says, I am not a number, I am a person. And this is some excellent comic timing, I think, because number six is basically saying the theme to the whole show. Mm. And the crowd, instead of being moved by it, they hear a big balloon in the crowd pop, then they laugh uproariously. I am not a number. I am a person. <laughs> so that was an inauspicious start to his speech. Number six mentions they all have some kind of knowledge, and like him, they're all here to have that knowledge protected or extracted. Number two, standing beside him, says quietly, that's the stuff to give him. <laughs> He's enjoying the speech. Number six goes on, unlike me, many of you have accepted the situation of your imprisonment and will die here like rotten cabbages. <laughs> At which point, number two interjects, keep going, they love it. <laughs> <laughs> this cabbages thing comes up multiple times. We saw that. In the general, yeah. when he said that the machine was going to, yeah, turn everyone into cabbages. <laughs> Knowledgeable cabbages. 
maybe it's a very British thing because you know the whole boiled cabbage for dinner. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. But it's a good analogy. I've always had this thought about Brave New World. Mm-hmm. That reading that book, it sounds like a fun society to live in. It, it's similar to the village in some ways. It could be a fun society, but you look at the people in the society and they're not worth the powder to blow them up, <laughs> as the <laughs> saying goes. That's kind of what number six is getting at, I think. He says, others, aside from the ones who have accepted the situation, others have gone over to the side of the wardens. I intend to discover who are the prisoners and who mm-hmm. are the wardens. I shall be running for office in this election. He's thrown <laughs> his head into the ring. It's interesting how much of a setup all this was, right? You know, number two comes over out for breakfast, and five minutes later, <laughs> six is running a campaign. I think a, a sub-theme of the whole show is who are the prisoners and who are the wardens, and we will see a future episode where the entire episode is themed around that. Oh, Okay. We have a similar question, who are the prisoners and who are the wardens and who are the people who can be trusted and who are the people who can't. There's not exactly a hundred percent overlap, like not all the prisoners can be trusted and maybe Mm -hmm. not all the wardens can be mistrusted. We saw, well, was it number 12 who seemed to be like a younger version of number six? Mm -hmm. We've seen just enough examples of people who seem to have some shreds of their souls intact that we can't be confident about which class anybody here in the village Mm -hmm. falls into. As we saw in the last one, Tribes of Big Ben, when someone else showed up and was going through the same thing that number six had been, he acted just like anyone else in the village, right? Because he couldn't trust them. So he was going to give them Mm. the same line and sort of fall in line with the village because if you don't know if you can trust them, then you end up sort of being part of the system. Right, right. And he's becoming a big part of the system in this episode. (laughs) (laughs) For a little while, anyway. Number two says, a big hand for number six. And suddenly, next time we see a shot of the crowd, there are people bringing forward big number six placards. (laughs) Obviously pre-printed. They have a big black and white photo on them. It's essentially the same poster as we've seen of number two, except this is for number six. I believe this is the same photo that we see redacted mm-hmm. in the introduction every episode. Yep. Number six, when he notices the signs, he does a double take. And probably being the smart guy that he is, he doesn't take long to realize this was all just some kind of big setup. Although what the nature of the setup is, he doesn't know. And I think uh, we'll see kind of how they play with this, but that's an interesting element of the whole story is on the one hand, he has to know it's a setup and he has to know that he's not going to be put in charge. But on the other hand, he can't take the chance in a way that it's not true. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe he, maybe it's real, in which case he's got to do it. Right. Yeah. If it could be, you, you never know just how perverse the village is. <laughs> <laughs> it could be number one is just enjoying the spectacle more than anything else. It's true, I think, in cult situations and in sort of government situations like this, that when somebody is a real troublemaker, the best way to get them on your side is to give them power. Mm. Yeah. You know, make them part of the system by giving them power, and that's how you can turn them. That does make sense, yeah. The video game Days Gone, I haven't finished it, but there's one of the settlements has the second in command is this obnoxious Weasley guy. And that 
helps explain why he might have gotten into that position. Well, I've also seen, I don't know how true it was, but I've seen in some of the movies and things about the concentration camps in Germany. They would have people from the concentration community, Jewish people, be the sort of uh, wardens. Mm. They'd give them a little bit of power and then let them police their own, which, again, is another version of this, right? Right, right. And then there was, uh, well, like... Samuel L. Jackson in, what was it, Django? I don't know if you saw that. Django Unchained, yep. He's in the big house, and he mm. he is on the side of the plantation owner. Effort. Out of nowhere, Miss Laura come up with the bright idea of giving your ass to the LaQuint Dickey Mining Company. And as a slave of the LaQuint Dickey Mining Company, henceforth, Till the day you die, all day, every day, you will be swinging a sledgehammer, turning big rocks into little rocks. Now, when you get there, they're going to take away your name, give you a number and a sledgehammer, and say, get to work. Well, and you know, they have an unpolite term for that, right? The uh, house. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, I was sort of uh, <laughs> talking around it. <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, the same idea in, in various contexts. Just a psychological constant, I guess you'd say. So number six did a double take when he saw the signs and possibly realized the implications of them. Number two leaves the balcony and gets in his cart and he's still carrying the megaphone and he says through the megaphone, be seeing you. Number six's own cart is now decorated with one of these big campaign posters. It pulls up and the driver's number 58. She's the maid who seems to speak no English. Yes, you take me, take me to the town hall. The town hall. That's all right. Thank you. I'll I'll walk. But she's very excited all the time. (laughs) Yes, yes. She's very enthusiastic. She seems to be a real admirer of number six. And he is, in fact, swarmed by admirers as the cart pulls up. He gets doused in confetti. It's a very energetic scene, and he doesn't look entirely happy about it. He looks rather (laughs) apprehensive, actually. And number 58 says something in her incomprehensible language. And then we cut to number six's apartment. Apparently, he's been here for a little while because he's stepping out a side door, apparently, wanting to go somewhere. But he sees number 58 is down there waiting in the cart. So he goes back into his apartment and gets on the horn to number two. He says, she will not go away and she doesn't even speak English. (laughs) He's disappointed in the quality of the help. Number two says, knowing your, shall we say, prejudices, I thought you'd rather not have another regular. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm wondering if this is uh, a comment on McGowan's own desire to avoid pretty women as much as possible throughout the series. I'm not sure what prejudices number two is referring yeah, it, to. Yeah, it's not obvious to me either, although, it's I mean, she is a pretty woman, so they're not <laughs> yeah. avoiding that with this one. But I would think, and I think one reason she may be speaking in an incomprehensible language is the idea is that She's someone who can't really report on him if she doesn't know English. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure, that makes sense. Well, that won't pan out real well for him either. (laughs) (laughs) 
Anyway, number two seems to have thought he picked the right lady. This transport, at one point, when, uh, they refer to it as a wagon transport, the things that we've been calling carts or cars. It'll be at number six's disposal for the run of the election, the, the transport and the driver. They had whatever he desires within reason. <laughs> I don't think he really puts it to the test much. You'd think he could at least get an honest drink. Mm-hmm. But, uh, well, that does become not. an issue. Huh? <laughs> yeah. So number six, also one of his other requirements of candidacy, he has to go to the town hall in half an hour to witness the dissolution of the outgoing council. So he goes outside and tries to get a ride from number 58. She smiles pleasantly and she spouts more foreign jibber jabber. So he decides he's just going to walk. After walking for a bit, he comes to one of those free information kiosks. And his wagon with number 58 pulls up just as he arrives. He pushes the button to highlight the town hall to show her where he wants to go. She pushes button number six, which presumably is lighting up his own apartment. Maybe that's just to show her enthusiasm to vote for number six. (laughs) Yeah, it didn't make a lot of sense to me. (laughs) Yeah, but they they get in the wagon and drive off. And as they drive off, two paparazzi (laughs) chase the cart and they climb on. The one on the hood is a blazer like number six's, but it's pink and it has black trim. This guy has a camera. The other one in the back seat, he's got a blue cap, almost looks like a fisherman's cap, but it's also kind of like a baseball cap. He's got a beige sport coat. He's number 113, and the man in pink is 113B, (laughs) which I think is the first time we've seen this particular use of the numbers. Mm -hmm. Both of them contribute to the village newspaper, the Tally Ho, which is what you say when you're off on a fox hunt. So, uh... (laughs) Number six is the hunted in this village, so Mm -hmm. there could be a little symbolism to that. Number 113 says, we haven't had a candidate of your caliber for ages. Number six says, congratulations. (laughs) (laughs) Number 113 asks number six various questions. He asks how he'll handle his campaign. He asks about his internal policy and his external policy. Number six has no comment for any of those. So number 113 just writes down platitudes for the answer to each question. How are you going to handle your campaign? No comment. Intends to fight for freedom at all costs. How about your internal policy? No comment. We'll tighten up on village security. Smile! What 113 writes down for external policy is especially amusing to me. Our exports will operate in every corner of the globe. <laughs> so I, I imagine we'll be eating village brand spaghetti sauce eventually. Hey, I'd buy it if I could, if somebody put that out. <laughs> I like, I oh, like sure. the uh, branding they do with the, the <laughs> penny farthing, right? Little, yeah. <laughs> so now the reporter asks, how do you feel about life and death? And now number six changes his answer. Instead of saying no comment, he says, Mind your own business. <laughs> and number 113 records, no comment. <laughs> <laughs> they get outside the town hall, and 113B, the guy in pink with the camera, he takes off and waves goodbye. There's a paper boy nearby crying, read all about it. And that also appears to be 113B. Number mm-hmm. six turns back to look behind him, and 113B is still there and leaving. 
So maybe these two are twins or clones. Then this is a similar situation to the electrician that I, I think mm-hmm. it was the first episode. He was a bald guy in a noticeable, I think it was an orange jumpsuit, something like that. And he left his apartment and then saw the same, apparently the same guy just walking along the path. Yep. I think there's just this vague implication that they have some kind of cloning program. And I think it's actually really nicely handled that they never say anything about it. <laughs> it's just another thing to wonder about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the, the paper boy's bending card is, is kind of slick. The papers are just printed on one large roll. And every time somebody wants a newspaper, the paper boy just tears one off. Like you'd tear off a sheet of wax paper through your kitchen. And I feel like this must be something real or have been at the time. I don't know. I, 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 Maybe they made yeah. it up, but I, it feels like something that would have. Yeah, it does seem just, like it would probably be practical for a certain point in technological evolution. It also, I think, I'm not sure, but it doesn't really look to me like the rest of the roll is printed at all. It almost <laughs> looks like there's one newspaper printed there just for number six's benefit, but that could be reading <laughs> too much into it. But knowing the village, it wouldn't be terribly surprising. Yeah. He looks at the newspaper. It's just one page printed on one side of the sheet right up in the top center there's a great big picture of number six this is an interview with him and it's presumably the interview that he just gave on the drive over here <laughs> so they didn't really need to wait for the answers they they already had their story ready to go yeah <laughs> <laughs> very efficient the village can be sometimes and now Rover approaches, he's making a scary noise, but we see soon enough that he's just there to block the gates to make sure that number six doesn't forget to go inside. He does go inside, and number two's voice directs him around the entryway to a set of doors. Past those doors, we see a new angle on the dome room. It's red now, lit in red. We're seeing it from the top of a staircase. It's a, it's a tall staircase, about two stories. And we can see that the dome room is much taller than two stories, probably four or five stories. This is obscured in many scenes that are shot in the dome room, but here they're playing it up as much as possible. Also, I noticed they're using that kind of thrown chair thing that looks like an Illuminati thing with a blue glowing light in it. We've seen it once or twice before. It seems to show up in this set whenever they want it to be a little more scary, a little more, you know. Yeah, a little more imposing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that is down there on the floor of the room. We, you've got several members of the council arranged in a semicircle. And number two has the middle seat, which has the Illuminati eye and the throne and all that stuff. And, and that eye actually flashes on and off. It's lit with a blue light sometimes, and other times it goes dark throughout this ensuing scene. Number six, coming down the stairs, he pauses about halfway down to have a short discussion with number two about playing by the rules. Number two seems to endorse playing by the rules. As I've said earlier in the episode, this number two seems a bit too pleased with himself, for my tastes, for constantly telling outrageous lies to number Mm. six. He He seems to really, really enjoy it. The last act of the outgoing council is a resolution. It's a vote of thanks to number six. It's really, really heart-touching, I think. (laughs) 
There's no voting evident from the council, but number two pounds his gavel and says the motion is passed unanimously. <laughs> so he is officially thanked now. Number six has questions, the first of which is, where did you get this bunch of Taylor's dummies? Number two will allow questions, but he starts number six's podium slowly spinning. So it's a, it's a little bit of an awkward situation for questioning. It's just doing a 360 degrees around over and over again. Number six persists, though. He asks, who elected these council members? What country they're loyal to? What side they're on? And the council members don't answer any of the <laughs> questions. They just stay quiet. Number two bangs his gavel and says, mustn't get too personal, my dear fellow. <laughs> number two turns on a blue spotlight and asks whether number six has further questions. Well, six goes on to insult the fake democracy of the village, and he asks why they don't just put everyone into solitary confinement and be done with it. <laughs> number two pounds his gavel some more. Number six goes on to insult the council some more, and he holds up the newspaper with the fake interview on it. He asks, is this how they tried to break you till they got what they were after? Number two bangs his gavel again. Number six tries to give a rousing speech to wake up the council, snap them into their senses, but number two pounds his gavel once again, and he turns on a brighter spotlight. Now he seems offended. He says this is a serious breach of etiquette. He starts the podium spinning again. He says the rules demand that you should undergo the test. Again, it's carried unanimously. <laughs> the podium starts spinning faster, and number two keeps on bagging his gavel. He's just gotten into a rhythm now. Well, he gets, yeah, he just gets really frantic <laughs> as uh, this podium is dropping into the floor with, with number six. Number two is just going crazy with the gavel. Yeah. The rules demand that you should undergo the test. All those in favor, head a unanimous lip. <laughs> it's a, it's a little eerie. <laughs> the podium goes down to a lower level. Number six keeps spinning at it until he stumbles off and he's in a hallway. The hallway's lit with red light and it, it looks like the hallway we've seen in the village hospital where they had straight jacketed people sitting up against the wall. Looks like they're reusing that hallway for this. The length of the hall has rails on the ceiling with subway hand straps hanging down, which is handy because number six is dizzy and he can use these to sort of stumble down the hall. Ooh, very convenient. Yeah. <laughs> he makes it to the doorway at the end of the hall. He's standing there hanging on with a strap at either end. Through the doorway is another incarnation of the dome room. This is one of the ones that's shot to look smaller than the previous one. This one's lit green. It has some columns standing up around it to make it look even more intimate. And we get a neat shot here. It's number six lit in green, the light coming out of that room. And behind him, we see the hall lit in red. It's really a striking contrast. It doesn't last long, but for that brief moment, that green light, I think it kind of emphasizes that he's been spinning around on that podium and he's kind of nauseous. <laughs> <laughs> he looks dazed and he stumbles into the room and he falls to the floor. 
In the robe, near the center of the room, there's a man at a desk. This is number 23. He gets up and walks over to number six. He says, in case you're feeling violent, please let me assure you that I could be a friend. And he has a nice looking guy, sort of an older, white haired person. Yeah, yeah, kind of a, kind of business like. He looks like he could maybe be a nice mentor or something. <laughs> <laughs> number 23 adds, come have some tea and we'll talk. Number six says he takes no lumps, which we've seen in previous episodes. Number 23 knows it from number six's records. He even knows that number six gave up sugar four years and three months ago on medical advice. And 23 goes on to interpret this to mean number six is afraid of death. You gave up sugar, you must be afraid of dying. I'm afraid of nothing, says number six. You're afraid of yourself, replies number 23. And number six doesn't deny it. There's a weird little theme in a couple of these episodes about Sugar Cubes and his records. Leo McKern, in the last one, in terms of Big Ben, spent a lot of time on this. And number six screwed with him by taking three lumps of sugar <laughs> after, you know, it said none. And yeah. it's, it, it makes me think, again, I think there's a little bit of a cultural thing here, which is, it seems to be very culturally important in the British culture to kind of know how many lumps of sugar someone takes in their tea. And it, mm -hmm. it's sort of like the French are always going on about whether they're having white or red wine that night or that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this just seems to be one of those little tells, like the people writing it probably wouldn't even realize that they were sort of showing something about their culture. Oh yeah. <laughs> Number 23 goes on to say, confidences are the core of our business. See how honest I'm being with you, <laughs> which is a, a good, amusing line there. Now we cut to the war room where number two is watching number six and number 23. They're in silhouette on the big screen. It's sort of a deep blue with their silhouettes in black. It almost looks big enough that it could be a window into a room right behind that screen, but I think it's yeah. actually displaying a... Remote image. Mm -hmm. Number two asks one of the seesaw operators, the guys in the thing in the middle of the room that spins around. He asks one of them where they got number 23. The guy replies, the civil service. He adapted immediately. I think this may reflect a British sentiment against the civil service. And you had mentioned a while back that Yes Minister was a good show. And so I started checking it out. I've seen well, probably four or five episodes now. And that show parodies the civil service. In fact, <laughs> the minister of the title is in charge of the department that administers the civil service. So it gets parodied a lot in that show. And in, in the episodes I've seen, it seems to be mainly attacked for being wasteful. You are not here to run this department. I beg your pardon. You are not here to run this department. I think I am. The people think I am too. With respect, Minister, you are... They are wrong. And who does run this department? I do. <laughs> I see. And what am I supposed to do? We've been through all this before. Make policy, get legislation enacted, and above all, secure the department's budget in cabinet. I sometimes think that the budget is all you ever really care about. Well, it is rather important, Minister. <laughs> if nobody cared about the budget, we might end up with a department so small that even a minister could run it. 
But in this case, I take the statement he adapted immediately. I take it to suggest that number 23 is lacking a moral compass in some way. <laughs> I think so. you're right. And I never even saw that as a joke, but I think it is a joke absolutely about civil service. <laughs> <laughs> well, the phone rings and number two is talking to someone who's high ranking enough to scold him. It's probably, probably number one. Though this is a normal village cordless phone, it's not the giant number one hotline that we've seen before. The caller seems to be reminding number two to be careful not to harm number six. And number two ends the call with an ominous assurance that certainly I'll warn them not to damage the tissue. Hey. This also seems to be just, it's a very common conversation, right? Where often number two wants to do more. And then they're told not to harm him, but it's an ongoing theme again. Right. And I guess that's the number six's benefit. He might've been <laughs> dead several times by now otherwise. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's clearly very fortunate that they value him. And we've seen people around who clearly they didn't value and, you know, are no longer quite right in the head. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We've seen people suffer. Have we ever seen someone killed outright that we know of? I mean, like there was the guy who, among the frozen people who panicked and ran from Rover, but we never knew for sure that he died. To him. The, I think in the last episode, and I don't think we talked about this in our podcast, but the number that the woman who was coming in replaced, Leo McKern said something about how they couldn't have a funeral because there wasn't a body for it, but he never explains what that mm. meant, right? So I, we never, I don't think we see anything directly, but there's sort of indirect mm. implications. You know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, interesting. All right. So in the green room, just as number two is uh, promised, he'll warn everybody not to damage the tissue. Number 23 picks up his phone and he confirms first stage only. <laughs> He walks to number six wordlessly and takes his teacup. Number six seems kind of in abeyance or stunned for a moment. But as number 23 goes back to his desk, number six starts to get out of the chair. But number 23 quickly, I mean very abruptly, he leans over his desk and pushes a button. And that sends number six into spasms and forces him back down into the chair. Yeah, and all of a sudden, number 23 is not being all friendly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What's the deal with that? Number 23 turns down the lights and says, this is the truth test. And now the big screen is lit up with number six's silhouette from the side. He's on the right side of the screen looking to the left, and he's got two black lines coming out of his eyes, one going up, one going down. And we'll see that they act as ramps. On the upper ramp, a circle can slide down towards his eyes. And on the lower ramp, a square can slide up. So the shapes, the circle and the square, they start off at the left side and they move closer to number six's face, depending on his mental answers to these questions that 23 is asking. Number six doesn't answer questions aloud in this scene. They're detecting what's going on in his head somehow. I think if they could do that, then theoretically, they could just ask a whole bunch of like 20 questions to find out <laughs> why he resigned, but yeah, maybe that just hasn't occurred to them yet. And also calling back to 1984 a bit, while they clearly care about the answer, I think part of this is forcing him to give the answer. 
right? Mm. They, they want to mm, break right. him in the process. Um, yeah, it's it's and, it's not enough for them to buckle under. They have to repent. Yeah. <laughs> well, number 23's first question is why number six wanted to run for office. First, the circle slides down towards number six's silhouette's eyes, and this indicates he's thinking a lie. <laughs> then the square slides up, and this means he's thinking the truth. Number 23 asks whether number six meant to start an organized breakout. And it's apparent that number six is being evasive in his head. So number 23 lectures him a little. He gives him a bunch of double talk about how number six mustn't think only of himself, and he has a responsibility. Where, of course, number six, he wants to liberate the villagers. The last <laughs> thing he's thinking of is, well, not the last thing, but he's thinking of himself as much as he's thinking of the villagers. So so number, number 23 is just obviously talking trash here. <laughs> Number six, meanwhile, he seems to be engaged in a mental struggle. He's, he's sweating and shivering. It might be because he's trying to resist the machine. There could be a variety of reasons. He's had this tea, and that probably had something in it. Uh, so there's various factors at work here, I think. Our circle and square slide around a bit more as he's questioned more. But finally... They seem to get into sync, and they converge on the silhouette's eyes. And when this happens, number six convulses, and he passes out. At this point in the war room, number two tells Central Area on the phone, he tells them to have number six's transport standing by. Back in the green room, number 23 checks number six's eyes to be sure that he's alive. And number six begins waking up, but he doesn't seem quite himself. He actually seems a bit more cheerful than usual. He thanks his host for the tea with a polite smile, reaches across the desk to shake number 23's hand, which is not something number six does with great frequency in the village. He seems politician-like all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and he says to number 23, you're voting for me, of course. And number 23 says, naturally. <laughs> yeah. Number six says, be seeing you, and he turns to go. As he's walking out of the room, number 23 pins a big black showy number six ribbon onto his own chest. He doesn't cover up his own number button, but he puts it on the other lapel. He's displaying his support for number six as a candidate. The ribbon, it looks like a state fair prize ribbon. It's really big and noticeable, but it's black, which I don't think they give out at the state fair. <laughs> number six reaches the exit door. And he stops to turn and say, be seeing you again, which he said 10 seconds ago. So we are left with a little subtle question of whether he's entirely right in the head. He goes through the door, and it's the front office of the labor exchange. This is the place we've seen before with all the inspirational signs in it. There's about four of them in all, I think, and two of them I had read in the first viewing, and two of them I read about reading about the episode later, but they're all very villagey. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so getting into the second half of our story. So number six goes outside the labor exchange and into the public with his hands raised in typical politician style, 
The public is all there cheering for his candidacy. His driver is very excited, babbling on. And now there's news cameras all over and microphones and general pandemonium. But unlike his usual approach to these things, which would be closer to mine, where he would run away from them, now number six is fully into it. He's in politician yeah. mode. He's smiling. He's giving glib answers. <laughs> yeah, it's very un-number six. <laughs> yeah, and we get Guy's favorite, more village marching music as he's going along. <laughs> They sure know how to do their marching music in this village. <laughs> then we're in number six's apartment and he's watching himself give a speech on TV. And again, it's a very politician speech. The community can rest assured their interests are my own. And he promises security, which is kind of a funny thing to promise in the village. Cause how do you get more secure than the village? <laughs> yeah. Then it's also classically a lot of thinkers over the years have always raised a, a dichotomy between freedom and security that increasing one often tends to decrease mm. the other. And number six in his normal state of mind is all about freedom. So now promising security is his primary goal is a, a little suspicious. <laughs> he's also, I'm not sure if he's come up with this or if he picked it up from the village. But he has a little salute that goes with the phrase, be seeing you now, where he makes an okay sign, you know, touches the thumb and forefinger together, that he briefly brings it up to his eye, just quickly, like a brief salute. But that seems to be becoming a thing with him, at least the, with the candidate version of him. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that that's always been there, but I would actually have to go back and check because I'm so familiar with this salute that I may have been interpreting it into previous times when he or others mm. said, uh, be seeing you. Yeah. It's a, it, it very well may have appeared in the past, but if it has, I don't think it's been with the frequency that we see it in this episode. Yeah, that's true. He gives the maid slash driver a pep talk. Although you've only been here a short time, my dear, there's only one thing to learn and it can be learned very quickly. Obey the rules and we will take good care of you. <laughs> this is clearly not the number six we're used to. Right. And then we get this really odd sequence where he suddenly, and he does this a lot in this episode where, where he'll go from kind of jolly to mean in, in no time at mm. all. He's trying to get her to say, be seeing you in English. She keeps speaking in her language and he's getting madder and madder at her for not doing it in English. And then something seems to happen to him where he has a sudden realization he suddenly starts working out how to say, be seeing you in her language. Mm -hmm. And he says it and she gets all excited and keeps repeating it over and over. Lie. Is it a zoon? Ah! Lie. Is it zone? Lie, is it zone? And as she's doing that, he just seems to have a breakdown or it might be the reverse of a breakdown, an unbreakdown, because I mm. think he's starting to realize that he's been under some kind of control for the last hour or two or however long it's been. Except right. we don't even know. It could have been a day or two mm. since number 23 did whatever he did to him. Yeah. 
he seems to realize something's been wrong. He rips off his number six ribbon corsage and runs out of the apartment. He drives away without her. She runs after him. And people are immediately on to him. The helicopter is flying around. Citizens are following him. The butler is there. And he's trying to figure out what to do. He's, he's clearly just discombobulated and trying to get away from everything. Yeah. There's one point where he's driving down the street and the street's actually blocked by a group of his supporters. So he has to bail out of the wagon. Yeah. And then you have a, a sudden change in the music and you get this very James Bondish action music. <laughs> Followed by a very James Bondish action scene where he sees a couple of workers with a motorboat, which is maybe a little unwise of the village to have a motorboat hanging around because obviously people might try to use it to get away, which what yeah. he does, he jumps into the boat. There's a couple of these guys there. He drives off with them in the boat and we get a classic action fist fight where he's simultaneously driving the boat and, and fighting with these guys and trying to throw them off. And it turns yeah. out that number two is in the helicopter following along. Mm, yeah. And that, I wanted to mention here that you called it James Bondish, and that was exactly the thought that I had. So I think this is a good place for a sound clip so that uh, <laughs> people can compare and contrast. Because it, I mean, I don't even know the James Bond movies all that well, and I thought it was James Bondish. <laughs> I'm curious how intentional it was. I mean, he directed this, so it must have been his choice because mm -hmm. his whole stick was being James Bond, but not being James Bond, right? Not going after the women, right. not using guns to kill people. So it's really interesting that as the director and writer of this episode, that he included this sequence. Oh, yeah. Uh, so number two is falling along in the helicopter and number six falls out of the boat. He's hanging on. There's one minion left that he didn't manage to get off. The minion has a big pipe. He's about to bash his head in with it. When number two reminds him to uh, be careful, they're not supposed to damage the tissue. Number six manages to knock this guy off the boat and drive off. Number two is falling along, telling him to stop before it's too late. You know, he's been being so reasonable recently. Doesn't want him to ruin it. <laughs> And then number two gives up and calls in a Southern perimeter alert. And I just haven't noticed like the first time that they didn't call in an orange alert. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But the result is the same, you know, Rover starts coming up through the water and comes at the boat. Either the boat is not, it's hard to tell from how they shot it. Either it's not responding when he tries to maneuver it, or it doesn't matter where he goes, Rover's in front of him. I got the impression that the steering wheel had been disengaged somehow, that he was just turning it to no effect. Mm -hmm. So he jumps in the water and tries to swim away, but of course that's not going to work and Rover gets him. <laughs> and then we get what we saw in, again, in Chimes of Big Men in the last episode, we get the embarrassing three ball treatment <laughs> to track into George. <laughs> and I'm starting to think that uh, maybe the village does this just to humiliate you a little extra if you try to get away by water. <laughs> yeah, couldn't be. <laughs> and on the way back, uh, Rover did his thing where he sort of absorbs the person. We never quite know what that means, but you see their face get pressed into the side of Rover. 
Mm-hmm. We saw, I think, some colored lights and stuff. So Rover actually not only retrieved him, but seems to have reset his programming while he's dragging him back in the water. Because mm. while he's being dragged back in the water, he starts repeating his election speeches and such. Yeah. Community, I can rest assured that their interests are very much my own and that anything I can do to maintain the security of the citizens will be my primary objective. Be seeing Be seeing And then an ambulance shows up and takes him to the hospital. In the hospital, he has fragmented dreams of everything that's been happening in the last few days. I don't think there's anything really new in there. I mean, they do have a, a little Easter egg or two, like the people who are carrying big election signs down the street, the signs are blank instead of having one of the candidates on them. So, you know, there's just mm. some little weird differences, but it's not like there's some realization or anything from this dream that I could tell. Yeah. Then we kind of see what's happening or they, they bring him from the hospital to his apartment and put him in bed and over the bed, there's this lamp flashing. And at first it just seems to be kind of a flashing lamp, but then it starts lowering over his head and it's very menacing. It goes right down to his face. So you kind of get the impression that this is probably another form of mind control. Yeah. And next thing we know, he's outside giving a speech with a megaphone. Kind of interesting. There's a guy holding a big cue card with the entire speech on it in front of him, a few feet in front of him. And I'm going to guess this probably was how some political speeches were given before teleprompters, though I don't recall actually Mm -hmm. seeing that. And I'm old enough. I should remember. (laughs) (laughs) Do you recall anything like that where there's just a politician and there's someone holding a big sign in front of them with, with their speech on it? Um, I've seen cue cards used for decades and decades, but I'm not sure about political speeches. I mean, in the old school, the politicians would just know their speeches or else uh, I think <laughs> yeah. well Lincoln famously wrote the Gettysburg address on the back of an envelope so it always helps to have some kind of notes right another little weirdness while he's giving this impassioned speech everyone listening is completely still and silent you don't really know if they're reacting or not but then when he reaches the end at the very same instant all of them kick into action and start chanting <laughs> and cheering and going into hyper mode yeah Then we see elsewhere, number two is giving his speech. I think on the same balcony, as he said, that number Jews give speeches on. And very few people watching him. They have no enthusiasm. He's kind of stuck because he's having to say, well, you know, number six is a really good guy and he has all these qualities. But I warn you, he doesn't have the experience to manipulate such a community as ours. (laughs) That's an interesting (laughs) phrase to use. And number six drives by giving a mobile speech. He's got a megaphone, he's driving around, people are following him. He's got the marching music and he drives up to where number two is and they do a little live negative campaigning (laughs) against each other. (laughs) He asks number two what he does in his spare time and number two says he has no spare time and number six immediately uses it against him. See, he's working to his limit. (laughs) (laughs) Number two asks what number six would do if he got spare time as leader. And number six has a pretty convincing answer. He says, Less work and more pay. Less work. And then he seems to think about it for a moment and, and more play. <laughs> and everybody <laughs> likes that answer. It's also a very yeah. not number six answer, I think. But yeah. <laughs> you know, he might get my vote. Yeah, sounds good to me. <laughs> now we go seemingly later that night to a restaurant. And number six is at a table with the maid slash driver. 
And he is looking out of it, even though they don't mm. have alcoholic drinks here, but he looks like he's drunk and he's really in a bad way. Yeah. The waitress comes over and she cheerily offers various non-alcoholic spirits and she keeps repeating, looks the same, tastes the same. <laughs> and number six yells at her to get out and says, as I feel any man of honor would. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. My theory here eh, could be wrong, but it's that I think his drugs, mind control drugs, are wearing off. And I think this is having the same effect on him as when Bender from Futurama runs out of booze, he starts to get drunk. (laughs) It's the absence of booze that makes him drunk. And I think whatever these mind control drugs do, I think when they wear off, they make you uh, erratic. I think that's a good point, and some stuff we're about to see in the story probably supports that. Yeah. So, perhaps like Bender would be, (laughs) Six is insisting he needs actual alcohol, and he turns on his driver, and he accuses her of spying on him, and then he insists that she get him a drink, presumably a real Mm -hmm. drink. (laughs) And she's trying to calm him down. She takes him out. As they're walking out, and and it's funny because the restaurant they're in, which I think we may have seen one time before is called the cat and mouse. (laughs) A little, I think, you know, another reference to the prisoner, uh, (laughs) approach to things here. And he's all whacked out and half repeating his election phrases. Like I say, just acting very oddly. And she drives him to a cave. We've seen this location used for a couple of things. And she points to the cave and promises he can get a drink inside. She's miming all this because she can't speak English. And then she runs away from him. Mm-hmm. He goes into the cave and it's very different than other village locations we've seen. It's kind of down and dirty and pretty clear that it's sort of a speakeasy. Mm-hmm. There's a guy tending a still and there's some old guy with a blanket over his head at a table drinking. Mm-hmm. Looks like a nice place to have a drink. I'd go there. <laughs> yep. And number six immediately demands a double and turns to the old man. The old man takes the blanket off and it's number two and he's not in a good way. He seems to be drunk and depressed with how the election is going for him. (laughs) Number two tells number six, there's no surveillance here. He calls it the therapy zone. You can come here to maintain your alcoholism in perfect privacy. (laughs) (laughs) That's how I like my places to be. And number two says to hell with the village. And he says that the guy who maintains the still is actually a brilliant scientist who does this for a hobby. And he takes number six to a back cave room to show him what, what it is they do with this guy. So what they do is they have this really big blackboard and every week they come down and take a picture of whatever formula the scientist has written on the blackboard and then they erase it so he can spend the next week doing another formula. And in the meantime, uh-huh. he maintains the still for them. <laughs> so that's a nice yeah. little job. You know? Oh, sure. So number two and number six drink to each other and number six falls down unconscious. And you got to say, how many times are you going to fall for this? Number six, you're this smart spy guy and you're repeatedly, you know, getting a Mickey. (laughs) (laughs) And worst of all, it turns out number two was not drunk at all. Just when I was getting to respect him. No, he immediately straightens up as soon as six falls down. It's all been an act. Mm. And the scientist comes over. And so apparently he gave him stuff in the drink that's supposed to take care of him through the election. He says it was very precisely calibrated. His number two was a little concerned that he overdid it since number six fell over. Mm. When he says it'll take him through the election, it's not really clear. Is he going to be unconscious? Is he going to be programmed? What does that mean? And they don't tell us because we now just switch 
directly to election day. And yeah. number two and number six are standing in front of the ballot boxes and people are coming in and they're voting by putting down either a number six or a number two corsage, you know, ribbon. Number six is getting all the votes. Number two says he doesn't even need a recount. It's clear. Yeah, his box is overflowing. And, <laughs> and as far as we can see, number two didn't get any votes at all. Yeah. So number two takes his election badge with a big number two on it and sticks it on number six and says he's going to show him the ropes. So they drive off, and this seems to have gone to number six's head. As he's getting in the car and driving off, he's waving to his people, clearly, and making statements to them. And they're all just watching him <laughs> silently now. There's no celebration or anything. <laughs> <laughs> they just elected him, so maybe they're already getting disappointed. Who knows? But he's, <laughs> you mentioned kind of the Hitler wave before. That's what he's looking like here, the way he's standing up in the car mm. and waving to people and making <laughs> speeches. You know, just clearly turned into a tyrant immediately. Yeah. And number two and the driver bring number six to the green dome. Yeah, a little oddity here. They walk up a long set of steps to get to the dome. And number two actually holds number six's hand all the way along. It's a bit infantilizing mm -hmm. and probably also implies that, you know, due to the drugs in his system or something, he needs some help getting up the stairs. All right. But it definitely kind of stood out. It was, it was weird to have him holding oh, yeah. his hand that way. You know, so they get to the green dome and go into the lobby and the door to the inner sanctum opens automatically. And number two says, any questions you have can be answered by pressing a button. He puts on his coat and gets his little briefcase and leaves. And mm -hmm. it's all there for number six. And the driver is there with him. So she goes into number two's office, you know, the big, the big room, all excited. And he joins her and she pushes a button and the, the famous number two chair rises up, the one that's sort of the half billiard ball. And number six starts pushing buttons and these are switching between both live and recorded video on the screen, including video of him at different times. The driver's all excited. She grabs one of the phones and hands it to him so he can call someone and give him some kind of command. <laughs> he picks up the phone and turns out he's talking to number 23, the kind of Sometimes nice, sometimes not. You know, gray-haired guy who uh, both was talking about how honest he was being and electrocuted him. <laughs> and number 23 accepts the call and number six says he was just checking or something. And then number six really goes crazy and starts pushing buttons all over and the chairs in the room all over are going up and down. <laughs> mm -hmm. Then we just have another one of these odd moments. And I think that we see that Patrick McGowan as a director, he seems to like to do this where... He did it several times in this episode where in the middle of something, all of a sudden everything changes. And in this case, the driver goes from being this, you know, kind of babbling idiot that she's been constantly the whole time, suddenly very serious. Mm. And she's staring at six and I don't know if the drugs are wearing off or what's going on, but he's in some weird state and she starts saying, Tick, 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 tick. And to me, it's like a clock thing or something. I don't know, but she takes him over hmm. to the big screen and there's these lights flashing on him from the screen while she's saying tick, tick. And she snaps her fingers once or twice as if she's trying to snap him out of something. And then, and <laughs> surprised to me, it wouldn't have expected it. She just starts slapping the hell out of him. <laughs> <laughs> And it is, uh, this tick, tick that she says is creepy and there's no, there's no obvious reason for it. It's been a long time since I saw it, but I think it was the film Marathon Man where there's a character who keeps asking, is it safe? 
in a certain context, and that's kind of uh, kind of eerie. Is it safe? Yes, it's safe. It's very safe. It's so safe you wouldn't believe it. Is it safe? No, it's not safe. It's very dangerous. Be careful. <laughs> And this is kind of that thing. It just you you wonder if you're dealing with somebody who's entirely there. <laughs> well, her slapping eventually seems to have an impact, and he seems to sort of snap out of things. But then he gets manic, and he rushes over to the console mm. and starts pressing all the buttons and talking into the intercoms to tell everybody on in the village. This is our chance. This is our chance. Take it now. I have command. I will immobilize all electronic controls. Listen to me. You are free to go. You are free to go. Free to go. Free to go. And we get a shot outside of one of the speakers, and what he's yelling actually is being broadcast around the village, but it appears no one's listening. Um, there's no reaction. We see a shot of some people walking around in one of the center areas. They're not paying any attention. And he says something in here that I, I thought was was provocative. He says, I am in command. Obey me and be free. <laughs> and he didn't seem to, you know, realize the the oddity of what he was saying, right? And in yeah, fact the, uh, hmm? the contradiction in there, yeah. <laughs> and I think this is potentially a a criticism of him, you know, by himself, obviously, since Patrick McGowan wrote it, which is He's assuming that everybody wants to be free the way he does. Mm -hmm. The reality is that most people in the village have accepted it and they got a pretty good life. Mm -hmm. And being free, and this is often the case, is going to mean being uncomfortable. It may mean leaving the village and no longer having this nice, comfortable life. So for him to say, obey me and be free is, is not a whole <laughs> lot different than the village saying, obey us and stay here, right? Yeah. <laughs> Two minions in gray uniforms rise out of the floor. It stands out because we've never seen uniforms like this before. Everyone else has all these really colorful things and, and everything. It kind of immediately implied to me that these are a little bit more serious Gestapo folks or whatever who, who need to come in when things are really problematic. <laughs> you know, they're, they're not sort of playing the games of, of the village would be my impression. Yeah. Number six evades them and runs out a door and we're back into some kind of cavern. And again, we just get one of these weird scenes where there is a green rover-like thing, a ball, and half a dozen guys are sitting around it in a circle, staring at it, wearing sunglasses. <laughs> it makes no sense. They don't explain it in any way. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, they're probably dope to the gills. <laughs> <laughs> now number six is stuck and has to fight the minions. And a little different than usual, you know, because normally he's the James Bond type and we've seen him before, like in A, B, and C, he dispatched everyone who mm -hmm. was sent up against him. This time they beat right. the crap out of him. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, I read about it in, in this case on Wikipedia and reading about the episode. This is one of two scenes that got cut down by the censors because they felt it was too violent. And mm. this part got restored in the version that oh, we're watching. Wow. There was one mm. other part that got lost and wasn't restored, and that was when he was in the restaurant with the driver. He spent more time there and did kind of a karaoke singing of some of his election stuff and everything. So uh, we, we missed out on that. <laughs> yeah. So he has beat the crap out of, he's literally bleed. The, I, one of the 
I think only times, maybe even in the prisoner, we see blood. He's got blood coming out of his mouth. Mm. Yeah, we uh, we did see when he got stabbed when he infiltrated that right. facility, and he was going to play the recording. Yeah, and in that case, it was a plot point, right? Because when they yeah. saw the blood, they could identify it. I think that's true, and I would argue this is the only time we've seen blood that was really someone actually gets hurt, right? And and mm. it's a result of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And they put him on a gurney and bring him back to number two's office. And our driver is now standing there in the center, looking very different. She's standing up very straight. (laughs) Her face is no longer in this kind of of a moronic, cheerful (laughs) state that it, that it had been throughout the episode. She's looking very severe and she's wearing number two's election badge. The one that he put on number six's chest. And she suddenly speaks English very well. <laughs> and she says, Will you never learn? This is only the beginning. We have many ways and means, but we don't wish to damage you permanently. Are you ready to talk? She kind of peppers him with some questions. And he's so out of it, obviously, he couldn't talk if he wanted to. They take him by ambulance to his mm-hmm. apartment. And the former number two is in the helicopter on the phone asking if things went according to plan. And she says, everything will work out in the end. Give my regards to the homeland. (laughs) Which an ongoing question is, is this place run by just one side or more than one side? This would be one of those hints of one side running it. Mm -hmm. And presumably not the British side as she's calling it the homeland. But (laughs) yeah. And that's the end of our episode. So let's talk about the actors. We have another number two kind of stands out. I think. What What do you think of? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I guess the original number two. Let's <laughs> uh, uh, uh. Well, I think the actor did a did a good job. But as far as likable number twos, this one I, I really I didn't care for him much he, because well I won't get too far ahead of myself. But he's just kind of a jerk. I mean, he, he's <laughs> even by the standards of number twos or by definition, jerks. I mean, he's just more jerky than most. <laughs> well, it's an interesting contrast with Leo McKern, who there's some equivalences in that they both seem very enthusiastic, right? And, and certainly both very mm-hmm. into their jobs. But Leo McKern made an actual sincere connection with number six and had his discussion about how he thought the entire world should be the village. And, and you know, he, mm-hmm. he clearly had a sort of philosophy. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think this guy has a philosophy. I think he's <laughs> just here to do his job. Right. <laughs> but yeah, I thought as an actor, he did good. I think if anything on rewatch, I always loved Leo McCurran. He's a real standout number two, but mm-hmm. I'm appreciating the other number twos probably more than I have in the past. And and one of the yeah. smart things about the way this show is structured is that they could bring in some really good stage actor or some well-known person. To just do one episode, right, and and mm-hmm. get to play kind of a meaty role. Oh yeah, yeah. The number twos have all had fun things about them so far. You know, they all have their own personality, so it's uh, it's it's worked well for me so far. I'd say. Well, how about our driver slash you know actual number two? Or I guess it's not that she was the actual number two; it's that she graduated into the role when <laughs> the first guy left. Yeah. And she may have been number one. I mean, number two did promise that if number six got yep. elected, he'd need to find number one. That's possible. <laughs> you know, 
On the other hand, when she was standing there, she had the big number two on her chest. So you have to make your own choice. (laughs) Yeah, who can say? (laughs) Yeah, I liked her. She was fun. And when she's being enthusiastic, I mean, she's very convincing being just sort of a bubble-headed admirer type. You know, it's enjoyable. Yeah, yeah. And her her switch to seriousness was also worked pretty well. (laughs) Yeah. Then we have really the only other kind of character you notice in this, which is uh, number 23. So he was the guy who was simultaneously nice and not nice and <laughs> electrocuted him, seemed to do the first brainwashing of him in this episode. Mm-hmm. What do you think of that guy? Uh, I I liked him. You know, he had that kind of avuncular quality, you know, where mm-hmm. he's just like a, a pleasant, distinguished, elderly gentleman, not elderly, but older gentleman. It was fun, especially when he metamorphosed into the not-so-nice guy <laughs> a little later. Yep. Pretty entertaining. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, a lot about elections and the press, <laughs> <laughs> how real or not real those things are. Yeah. And in a way, I felt like I had less to say about the story, because if if I had a criticism, I fully enjoy it, but it's very on the nose. I mean, it's it's just there, right? <laughs> like. Mm-hmm. You know, this election is all set up and the press is all just reports whatever they want to report. There's almost not much to comment on it because when people say subtext, right? And this isn't subtext, mm. this is text. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's showing you things about the village, but it's also uh, maybe inviting you to draw some correlations between the society that we know. <laughs> it's not subtle, but it was fun. And in some ways, it felt like kind of a. A more avant-garde episode, but partly because he spends a good deal of it drugged up, there's a little more uh, surrealism in this one than in some of the other stories, I thought. Well, I don't think it'll spoil things too much to say, whenever McGowan is doing the directing, it tends Mm -hmm. to go in that direction. Oh, okay. And so you're going to get some more opportunity to see that, I promise. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that when he's more involved, like in this case where he wrote it, he also goes that way in the story, right? Mm-hmm. As we said, there's just several points in the story where it suddenly switches or you're not quite sure what's happening and it gets a little weird. Yeah. yeah I just, I think that's how he liked to do things. I think he is less concerned than the other writers about telling a story with a coherent plot. Mm-hmm. I think that okay. he's happy to just throw in some odd things, you know, and, and take them where they go. <laughs> Hmm. Oh, that's okay. That's that's interesting. I uh, I would have thought that him having created the show, he would he would be trying to be as as clear as possible. But on the other hand, maybe the ambiguity and weirdness is part of the the horror of the village, so to mm-hmm. speak. You know. So mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I could I could see that. And this whole episode, to me, I mean. We know from the start he's not going to become number two and release the captives and so on. We know it's going to get screwed up for him in some way or another. So mainly the episode just, to me, it seemed like the main takeaway from it is is that it's just conveying the village is arbitrarily spiteful. You know, they Mm -hmm. can lie to you and they can screw with you as much as they like, and they will. That's... 
Yeah, that seems to me what the episode does. Unlike some of the other episodes where the number two is is really desperately trying to get the answer out of him, I think what we see in the end with our our new number two, the the driver, is she doesn't even really try to get anything out of him. She's just making it clear this is just the beginning and this is what you're going to go through. Uh, so at some point you might as well crack. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So in terms of order, this was the second episode to be produced and it's often placed second or third in the order of showing things. And I make it a little bit later because even, I I think I talked about up front, there are aspects of this story that clearly have it being one of the first ones, you know, he's still refusing to call himself number six and we've already watched episodes where he had accepted that. And he's being angry at some of the more basic things that, again, he kind of comes to accept in, in other episodes. However, the reason I, I just can't put this earlier is I feel like running for election in the second or third episode makes no sense because he needs to understand this place and a little bit about how it works before he would run. Uh, I don't know. So that that's my feeling there. Yeah, it, it it could be. Although, again, be if he did it when he was new, he might he might still entertain some hope that he could actually make a difference, which mm-hmm. would ex- explain yeah. why he undertakes it. And then I'm not sure if I prefer one or the other as far as the lumps of sugar. You <laughs> know, in 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 our ordering, we saw the the first lumps of sugar thing where he defies expectations and takes sugar after all. And then we see this, where if we'd seen it the other way around, would there be a different mood or a different way of thinking about it? I I can't say off the top of my head. But I thought as far as what we've seen so far, this fits in well here overall. Mm. I'm I'm not complaining. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So our ultimate question, which we forgot to ask, or I forgot to ask last week. So we'll be covering both Chimes of Big Ben and Free For All. Are you know? Um, are these stories uh, worth watching for a modern audience? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'd say both of them are. I think, uh, as we just mentioned, Chimes of Big Ben is more a conventional story, mm-hmm. as conventional as you can get in this show. Whereas this one has a little more, little more tinge of the weird and ambiguous to it. But I, I like them both. I haven't seen a clinker yet on this show. Uh, they, there could be some coming, but <laughs> so far, it's all good. Well, as a reminder for our listeners, I have removed four episodes from the main part of this, which we will watch after we've watched everything else. Not all of them because I consider them bad, but some of them maybe. <laughs> so you may you, you may get an opportunity to see some some clunkers at some point. We'll see no, right. what you think. <laughs> okay, very good. Next time, uh, and I'll say I'm, I'm excited to see what you think of this one. We will be watching The Schizoid Man. Oh, okay. <laughs> Very good.
also the idea of this thing is being able to indicate whether he's telling the truth or not. It gets to this obsession uh, culture has had with lie detectors over about the last 70 years. There's a very weird history there where one of the initial creators of lie detectors is the author of Wonder Woman, oddly enough. And then there's a whole very, very kinky, weird background to Wonder Woman in that guy's <laughs> life. <laughs> and even now, we use them all the time. And, and again, I've said before, one of my obsessions is reading about, you know, how to deal with things if you're being interrogated. And the reality is that lie detectors basically don't work. Mm. But that doesn't mean they're not effective. Mm. And so what they mostly use them for now is they use them so that you think that they can detect your lies and they use it as a way to manipulate you into telling them the truth. <laughs> so, yeah. so it's just kind of interesting how that's evolved. One of the things that they will do is they'll give you an initial sort of test run where you intentionally say very obvious lies, you know, what you had for mm -hmm. breakfast, that sort of thing. And then they'll say, wow, you're, you know, uh, uh, I forget the phrase they use, but, um, essentially, you know, you really strongly indicate whether you're lying or not. It's very easy on this to tell if you're lying or not. Um, very unusually mm -hmm. high, you know, and that way you go into the real test thinking, oh my God, I, you know, whatever I do is going to just reveal the truth. <laughs> uh, so it's just interesting how actually to bring it all around, the reality is the way that they use lie detectors is very much a village sort of thing. You know, it's, oh, an, yeah. it's all a big manipulation of you. <laughs> oh yeah. Very interesting. I, uh, I, I had, I had heard that they were at best unreliable, uh, but, uh, I didn't know the whole story. <laughs> right. Well, and even if there's things where they could occasionally statistically um, more often than not predict whether you're lying, it's actually very easy for someone to defeat them if they know anything about that. Right. So, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Huh. So William Marston was the guy who created Wonder Woman and who invented one of the early lie detector technologies. And one of the really interesting things, you remember there was the Controversy back then, Frederick Wortham was the guy going after comic books saying that they were, mm. you know, perverted and, <laughs> you know, had secret stories in them. And his big thing was that Batman and Robin were really a gay couple. And, oh. you know, this was teaching children about homosexuality and, and all of this. And the funny thing mm. is he was only, he was just pointed at the wrong comic book because... William Marston was into sort of BDSM stuff and he, he and his wife, there was a, there was a third woman who, you know, we can't fully know, but appears to have essentially been a sex slave of theirs and mm. his wife and this woman, both as, as kind of a sign of this relationship wore these, uh, bands or, um, around their arms or around their wrists, these wristbands. And huh. the wristbands are, you know, moved into Wonder Woman uh, yeah. as, as deflecting bullets. And when he would write his early Wonder Woman stories, the they kept getting annoyed at him because every story would have Wonder Woman get all tied up <laughs> in a very elaborate manner and have to be saved. And they kept saying, will you please stop tying her up? <laughs> so... 
so Frederick Wortham had gone after this guy, you know, he might have had some success or more success in his <laughs> at least been been more correct. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a whole bizarre history. There's some books about it. I, I recommend looking into it for anyone who finds any of that to be uh, salacious or interesting. <laughs> you see, you 